You may be seated. Thanks for standing for the reading of God's Word. Thanks, John. Well, that's where we're at in the book of Acts. On Friday, um, while I was writing this sermon, don't judge me here, I was listening to uh, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. Okay, there's a little judging going on, maybe. I'm an old soul. And uh, one of the many great songs is called The Waiting. A lyric in the song goes like this, waiting is the hardest part, right? The lyric taken at face value and perhaps taken out of context is, is generally true, right? Uh, waiting for something that is going to happen can be hard. <laughs> like I just think about the time a couple gets engaged, right? How exciting that is, you're engaged finally, but actually not finally because there's a wedding day and the hardest Part, time period of waiting is between you know, the engagement and, and that wedding day. You're waiting. The expectations are growing. These dreams seem to be within reach, but not quite yet. Waiting for the wedding day can be the hardest part. In, in Acts uh, 1, and in turning the page in Acts 2, we read that the disciples were told to wait. Remember what happened? The ascension of Jesus took place, and and Jesus is like, guys, don't go anywhere. You need to wait. So let's remember how we got here. The disciples were hanging out in Jerusalem at the direction of Jesus. And before Jesus ascended to heaven, he told the disciples this. And while staying with them, he ordered them. <laughs> it's not a suggestion. <laughs> You ordered them to not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Uh, since the Lord's ascension, which we read about in Acts 1 verse 9, and where we find ourselves this morning, Acts 2 verse 1, about, about 10 days have passed. You want a better context of what they're, how long they were waiting? 10 days. So for 10 days, at least 120 people, including the apostles, have been hanging out, casting lots. Remember last week, um, they, they playing euchre from Iowa. You know what that means. And perhaps creating a mission strategy. Who knows? Whatever they were doing... We know that they were told to wait, and out of obedience to their Lord, they did wait. Then the Jewish holiday of Pentecost arrived. The wait was over. Let's talk about Pentecost for a moment, because you might not know the significance of, of Pentecost prior to reading about it in Acts 2. Our familiarity with Pentecost is Acts 2, generally speaking. Well, there's a lot that is behind the scene of the Pentecost we read about in our Bibles. Pentecost is a Jewish holiday celebrating the harvest of food. Think about what we see here in Iowa. At the end of the growing season, farmers go out into the field, and what are they doing? They're bringing in the corn. They're bringing in the soybeans. And the Jews celebrated that moment by giving God the first fruits of their harvest. They gave God the best of their harvest. Here are a couple other interesting facts about the Jewish Pentecost. It was celebrated 50 days after the Passover, 
And it took place during the peak traveling season. So think about our calendar year. And when do people travel, generally speaking? June, July, August, right? The weather's nice. Which means Pentecost in Jerusalem in the first century had a cosmopolitan feel because Jews from outside of Jerusalem, they were descending on Jerusalem. This, is in, this will be interesting when we dig deeper in today's passage. Here's one more interesting fact about Pentecost in the first century. In addition to celebrating the harvest, the giving of the Ten Commandments from God to Moses was celebrated during Pentecost. The recognition of the Ten Commandments was developed later in Jewish history, but was clearly established in the first century. The short story is the Jews wanted to remember the time God gave them the law. I find this point fascinating when we consider what God now gives to his people at Pentecost in Acts 2. Let me, let me place Pentecost in a greater perspective by talking about everything that led up to Pentecost. In other words, in God's great redemptive plan, where does Pentecost fit? Is Pentecost like a footnote? You read a book, you know, you got the story, and someone's kind enough to put a footnote down there. Is that Pentecost? Is it a parenthetical statement? You read in a story, and all of a sudden you got a, you know, a quick mention of something, then you can move on. Or is Pentecost more significant? To help us understand Pentecost, let's go back to the Passover. A lot happened between the Passover, when Jesus celebrated the Last Supper with his disciples in Pentecost. Like I said, 50 days had gone by between the Passover and Pentecost. Listen to all that took place in this time period. Jesus was betrayed by his friend Judas. Jesus was then unjustly condemned to death by the Jews and Romans. Jesus then endured suffering. Jesus ended up carrying a cross up a hill that was meant for him to be nailed to. But it was on top of this hill where we see the pinnacle of God's redemptive plan. On top of this hill is where Jesus shed his blood to forgive the sins of those who would repent and believe in Jesus as the Son of God. On top of this hill is where Jesus broke his body, enduring the pain and punishment that should have been on you and me. It was on top of this hill where the wrath of God was satisfied. What else happened during these days between the Passover and Pentecost? Jesus was taken down from the cross and put into a tomb. Jesus was buried. However, to show the world that it had no power over him, Jesus rose from death. Jesus showed because he is sinless, the devil and death have no claim on his life. But there's more that happened between the Passover and Pentecost. And it's amazing to think that God could do more. But God did more. For many days after his resurrection, Jesus intensified his teaching and discipleship. So with holes in his hand and feet, Jesus went about preparing the apostles and disciples to take the baton from him. The apostles were being called by Jesus to bear witness to the world about the good news of Jesus. 
Well, the day came when Jesus ascended into heaven. And the passing of the baton was almost complete. Listen to what Luke records in his gospel. Remember, Luke wrote wrote Acts, and he also wrote the gospel according to Luke. The scene is when the prophet John the baptizer was baptizing a bunch of people. And these people were asking whether John was the Messiah. John's prophetic response directly connects with Acts 2. As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ... John's baptizing all these people, and they're like, and he's and he's preaching, and he's being prophetic, and he's saying, repent. And everyone's like, was that guy the Messiah? And John's like, nah. I baptize you with water. But he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Listen to this. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. I've I've read Luke 3 many times. And I gotta tell you, I can't tell you how many times I've read that and I'm like, why does John mention fire? Like, Holy Spirit, I get. What's with the qualification here? We We read why in Acts 2. John's response is awesome. He's basically saying, nope, I'm not the chosen one. As a matter of fact, you will know the chosen one because he's going to baptize you not with water but with fire. On the 50th day, we read about this promise being fulfilled. Jesus sends the Holy Spirit to his people in the form of fire. In light of Luke 3, now let's read verses 2 to 4 in Acts 2. And just allow your imagination to see the scene. And suddenly, there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in another tongue as the Spirit gave them utterance. Charles Spurgeon said this about the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. This is a good reminder of how we can further understand God the Holy Spirit. From the descent of the Holy Spirit at the beginning, we may learn something concerning his operations at the present time. Whatever the Holy Spirit was at first, he is now. For as God, he remains forever the same. Whatever he did then, he is still able to do. For his power is by no means diminished. We would greatly grieve the Holy Spirit if we supposed that this might was less today than in the beginning. While the work of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost is unique, I think, the Holy Spirit is the same and still at work today. 
So this passage, and there's kind of the temptation, right? Shouldn't cause us to like speculate. You know, we'll, we'll talk about the details here in a moment. Really, more than anything, it should put us in awe. Like, oh. So let's take a look, closer look at what's going on. We read about a sound like a mighty rushing wind. Verse 2. In my mind, I picture like a mini tornado taking place like in this room and everything's kind of getting whipped around. It's interesting that wind in the Bible oftentimes represents the Holy Spirit. So Genesis 1-2 is a very easy example. What happened in Genesis 1-2? The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The word spirit in Genesis 1-2 is often translated in the Hebrew as wind and that's all throughout the Old Testament. And then we read about fire resting, I assume, on the top of each person's head, verse 3. The fire symbolized the presence of God. Consider for a moment the times in the Old Testament when fire was used to symbolize the presence of God. And, And I'm mentioning this in part to help you read your Bibles. The Bible is a book. It's connected. So, listen, fire in the Old Testament represents the presence of God. Exodus 3, Moses goes up the mountain to speak with God, and God spoke with Moses through a bush that was on fire, but the bush was not being consumed. Exodus 13, God led Israel through the wilderness, right? It was a pillar of cloud by day, but what was happening at night? A pillar of fire to light the way for the Israelites. Exodus 19, we read the Lord descended upon Mount Sinai like a fire. Deuteronomy 5, the Lord speaks through a fire, and the list goes on and on and on. The power of Pentecost, and since Pentecost, is that the presence of God is now with his people, which is what the fire represents. Here's what I mean. In, in the Old Testament, the presence of God was really with like a few select people. Like, if you're going to go into the temple, guess what? You get to see the presence of God. Who, how many people are going into the temple? Not a lot, actually just a few. But now, with Pentecost, it's completely changed. The presence of God is with all of God's people. Pentecost is a seminal moment where we see that the presence of God rests on anyone who has faith in Jesus Christ. And we read this happens by the filling of the Holy Spirit, verse 4. In that language, filling, by the way, as a parenthetical statement, we're going to see that a lot as we go through the book of Acts. So we'll talk more about that when we get there. But I do want to hit the pause button for a moment. Pentecost is truly historic. And beyond the importance of the history of Pentecost, consider the practical implications for your life. Right? I've kind of told you the, the biblical narrative, some of the history of Pentecost. But the question really comes, right, what, about, what does this mean for me? What do I do with this? If you've been filled with the Holy Spirit, here's some things you need to know. One, God is with you. Right? Consider this fact. Christian, 
God the Holy Spirit knows you better than you know yourself. He knows you better than you you know yourself. If you've been filled with the Holy Spirit, then the power and presence of God resides in you. John Stott um, punctuates the importance of the Holy Spirit in your life so well. Listen to this quote. There can be no life without the life giver. No understanding without the spirit of truth. No fellowship without the unity of the Spirit. No Christ-likeness of character apart from His fruit. And no effective witness without His power. It is helpful for you to see, just as the apostles had the empowering presence of God within them, so does every follower of Jesus Christ. I think there's a real temptation sometimes when we read our Bibles and we read a scene like Pentecost and we read about the people and we say, whoa, look what God did through them as if God can't do that through us. There's a real temptation to read our Bibles like that. And I want to push back against that. Yes, I will acknowledge 100% there is something unique. We have God's word which shows us unique things happen like Pentecost, but that same power is in all of us. I'm not going to concede that point. And so that has a lot of implications for how we live our lives every single day. So through the highs and lows of your life, you can tap into the power of the Holy Spirit. For a moment, I'm going to make this really practical. Have you had a bad week? We've all had bad weeks. Perhaps bad weeks last a lot longer than a week. You can tap into the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit to help you through it. Tough day at home with the kids. God, through the Holy Spirit, is there to help you. Are you facing a major life decision? We all face major life decisions, right? Opportunity to lean into God, the Holy Spirit, to guide us. Do you want to be more bold in your evangelism? The Holy Spirit can give you boldness and the words to share the gospel. Back to the scene in verses 2 to 4. What is going on in these verses, I think, does challenge some of our modern sensibilities. I mean, when's the last time you saw fire rest upon your head? Right? But I submit to you, this took place just like the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. Further, I think Pentecost is a unique moment in history that belongs in the same category as the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. I'm going to grant that there is a bit of mystery that wraps around Pentecost. Our imagination can't fully grasp the scene, but perhaps this is part of the point in verses 2 to 4. There is beauty when we embrace the mystery. And I also think that the inclusion of wind and fire point to the unique nature of the moment. It is as if God is putting a signpost in the ground to mark the significance of the moment. I've been using 
this example in the past few weeks as we talk about Acts, I'm going to use it one more time. Think about a track and field relay, like a 4x1 or a 4x4 meter relay race. Standard track and field. Pentecost is the moment of redemptive history when Jesus and the church are together holding the baton, and then Jesus finally lets go of the baton. And then the church begins to run with, with the baton, empowered by the Spirit. I shared this quote at the end of my sermon last week. It still applies this week. Though the place left vacant by Judas has been filled by Matthias, that was last week's sermon, the place left vacant by Jesus has not been yet filled by the Spirit. Acts 2 is where we see it filled by the Spirit. The passing of the baton is not only from Jesus to the disciples, but from the Son of God to God the Holy Spirit. So even though Jesus is not physically with us, his Spirit is with us. We live in the reality that Jesus is alive and the active work of the Holy Spirit testifies to that reality. I think, I think this is a good time to talk about some of the tensions in Christianity that exist regarding the Holy Spirit. Here's what I mean. There are I want to be gracious. There are churches and denominations who do not give the Holy Spirit the space he deserves. It's as if all they need is Jesus in their Bible, and then, they, and then like they're all good. Like, I got Jesus in my Bible. That's the framework. That's how they think through Christianity. Their creed is Father, Son, and Holy Bible. They treat Pentecost like a footnote to the greater story of God's redemptive plan. To treat the Holy Spirit as if he is like a supporting actor in a story is to say the Holy Spirit is not God. If you do not believe the Holy Spirit is currently at work and active, then you really need to think through what you believe about God. Listen, Christians have no problem saying if you do not accept Jesus, then you do not know God. But I do wonder why we don't hold that same logic when we talk about God the Holy Spirit. Like we want to hold a solid Trinitarian view of God. Why don't we ask that question? May as well blow up the Trinity. Perhaps not with words, but with actions. So that's one extreme. It's just to kind of not talk about the Holy Spirit. Maybe acknowledge it in your Bible reading, but there's no practical implications on a person's life. The other extreme is to take Pentecost and what Acts 2 says about the Holy Spirit and make the Holy Spirit the only governor of the Christian faith. I'm talking about extremes here. This extreme diminishes the role of Christ and places the Holy Spirit as superior. Again, this results in an unorthodox view of the Trinity, and sometimes this leads to doctrines which present a, shall we say, heretical view of the Trinity. And there are churches within a few minutes drive who hold this kind of unbiblical view of the Trinity. Here's how we need to understand and apply the Holy Spirit to our lives from Acts 2. Let's realize that when Jesus passes the baton to the church, he's passing it along to you, Christian. We've talked about that. Which means the Holy Spirit is in you. The moment you repented of your sin 
And with faith, put your trust in Jesus, you are baptized with the Holy Spirit. That's the language we read in Acts 2. God is with you, period. Make no mistake about it. Do not question it. God seals his children by the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 1.13. Here is what the Holy Spirit is doing. The Holy Spirit testifies to the risen Christ. Every Christian has faith in Christ because the Holy Spirit has revealed Christ to the heart. And it's not just a one-time affair. As Christians grow, the Holy Spirit reveals more of Christ to the heart. You could say the Holy Spirit is present as Christians become more mature in the faith. We call that sanctification. What else is the Holy Spirit doing? The Holy Spirit empowers Christians. We will see the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit as we continue our journey through Acts. But for now, remember, the power that raised Jesus from the dead is in every Christian because of the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. What else is the Holy Spirit doing? The Holy Spirit restores people. Restores people. I mean, just think about this for a moment. Before um, Christ, before, by faith, a person puts faith in Christ, what are they? They're a mess. Broken. Rebellious hurting. After a person is saved, because of the power of the cross and the active work of the Spirit, a person undergoes what? Healing. Burdens are removed. Rebelling against God turns into worship. The Spirit continues to restore God's people. We still feel the effects of the fall today, but there will be a day when we will receive full restoration when Jesus comes back. So the Holy Spirit is about bringing restoration. Last point about what the Holy Spirit is doing. He's making us one in Christ. For a moment, consider the number of nations represented at Pentecost. Remember what I already said. Folks from all around the region were able to travel to Pentecost because the conditions were favorable for traveling. As far as diversity goes, there was a maximum participation at Pentecost. Perinthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and all the other parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene. There were visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We may as well have said Americans, Canadians, Mexicans, Bolivians, Germans, Chinese, Ugandans, Russians, Britons, etc., All these people from different nations, from different walks of life, speaking their own language, coming from their own culture with different skin color, are one in Christ. So, I want you to see what's going on here. Before, it was very monolithic, right? God chose Israel in the Old Testament. But now, the message of the gospel is for everyone. No matter where you come from, there is no American gospel. It's only a biblical gospel. And it's for everyone. And everyone who has faith in Christ are one in Christ. Pentecost represents that unity that we have in Christ. Now, the story of Pentecost in Acts 2 
is surrounded by uh, controversy. So if you like controversy, this is the part of the sermon where you can check in and you'll like it. You might not know, but let me give you the cliff notes. There are actually two primary controversies, but I'm going to hone in on one. In verses 3 and 4 and 12, we read of the word tongue, glossa in the Greek. Verse 3 said, tongues of fire appeared on the heads of the people, and then everyone began to speak in tongues, verse 4. And then we read that as people were speaking in tongues, the original language of the individual was being heard, verses 6 to 8. So the question is this, what is going on here, right? That's the question, what's going on here? I'll tell you what some folks say, and then I'll give you my best crack about how to interpret this passage. It is suggested, people I respect believe this, that what is being spoken, the tongues, is an untranslatable language, which is then understood by others in their own language. So an untrans- I'm speaking something untranslatable, and then all of a sudden you can hear it in English. Some people take that view. So the miracle being highlighted in this passage would not be the person speaking, but the person hearing, the interpreter. Many charismatics, which I am, and Pentecostals hold this view. However, I think this is putting a round peg into a square hole. Look again with me at verses 6 to 9. We're going to look at it closely. And they were bewildered. So people were watching, like, what's going on here? Because each one was, what? Hearing them speak in what? Their own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each one of us in his own native language? In these verses, the emphasis is on the Galileans who had been considered ignorant. Uh, the Galileans, at least in this context, are like your, your country bumpkins. It's like, what are they doing here? Right? Who invited those guys to the party? They're just backwoods folk. Yet they were able to speak a language that they had never spoken before. A reason why I think these Galileans are speaking in an intelligible language is because the Greek word for language in this text, in this context, is dialect. It would be like you coming to me and say, Hey, Pastor Sean, I learned French. I can speak fluent French. And I'd be like, So what classes did you take? I didn't take any classes. Oh, well, did you go to France and live there for five years? No, nope, didn't go to France. Never been to France. At least tell me you did Rosetta Stone. No, nope, didn't do Rosetta. And you can speak fluent French, and French people can actually understand you? Yep. Well, that's a miracle. I tend to think that the miracle going on at Pentecost is that. is people were speaking languages they never knew. Now, does my interpretation of Acts 2 impact my belief on speaking in tongues as it is understood in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14? Not for one second. I think Luke is describing a unique event in Acts 2, while Paul, who wrote 1 Corinthians, gives a robust defense and context of the spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians. Both interpretations can exist happily together. Both interpretations show the power of God through the powering presence of the Holy Spirit. I don't know how it all worked out at Pentecost. I don't. But I know enough from Acts 2. And what I know is that God has given his people the Holy Spirit to continue the mission begun by Jesus. When you read Acts 2, do not get lost in the weeds 
of controversy, but see what our sovereign God has done and continues to do through the church. It could be, it might be, that a bunch of country bumpkins from the backwoods speaking to one another in a language they never knew for the first time grab the attention of everybody. An event like this would have revealed the heart of every person, right? Think about it. If you're in that room and that's, what, and that's going on, all of a sudden you're going to respond to that. And you know what? People did respond to that. One of two ways. Verses 12 and 13. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? Fair question. What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, they are filled with new wine. They're drunk. (laughs) There's an easy explanation to this. They started drinking last night and they didn't stop. You know, when I was reading verses 12 and 13, it caused me to stop and say, how do I respond to Pentecost? When I read that, what is my response? Do I want to rationalize it? Ah, they're hammered. Or do I have a different response? Does Pentecost cause you to be in awe and wonder at the work and majesty of God? Does the miraculous cause you to pause and praise God? If so, your heart's in a really good place. Embrace the mystery, and you will embrace the majesty of God. Perhaps you count yourself as one of the people who mocked what was going on at Pentecost. You're saying, there's no way that happened. They're all drunk. I say this with respect, but may God have mercy on your soul. May the Holy Spirit reveal to you your heart. May he reveal to you the glories of Jesus Christ. May the Holy Spirit turn your skepticism into praise through repentance and faith. It's, it seems to me that one of the chief takeaways from Acts 2 is actually God. It seems really simple. God has been and is always at work in his people. And we, Redemption Hill Church, are on mission for God in light of Pentecost. We benefit from all that happened at Pentecost. Pentecost put into motion an unstoppable, ever-advancing mission of the gospel. We go out into the world to witness and minister to the broken and needy. We go out in the world to testify to the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. We go out into the world persuading those who mock God and those who say people speaking in tongues at Pentecost were drunk on new wine. How do we do that? Well, next week, Luke records Peter's response to the mockers. And what we're going to see is a revival breaks out because of the spirit-empowered preaching of God's word. Until next week, here's what I want you to take away from this sermon and from God's word and the Pentecost story. 
you, Christian, have been filled with the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit. Now act like it, right? Let's respond to it. Let's believe it. Live in the reality that God is with you and in you. Let's pray.